You're listening to the Forefront Church Podcast in New York City, dedicated to cultivating a just and generous expression of the Christian faith. Okay, so during my sabbatical, I I found this podcast. It was called um, uh, Revisionist History by Malcolm Gladwell. Raise your hand if you know about it, if you've heard about it. Really, really good. Really incredible podcast. So I I listened to the whole season while I was gone. Uh, One episode stuck out. Uh, and it stuck out because it affected me in, in the way I think about this church. And it, the episode that stuck out was called uh, Big Man Can't Shoot. Anybody listen to that episode? Um, I was talking to some of my leaders about this a couple weeks ago. Uh, it's about Wilt Chamberlain. Do we know who Wilt Chamberlain is? Good, good. Uh, so Wilt Chamberlain, one of the best basketball players of all time. And the reason he was one of the best of all time was because he could score with two or three players on him at will. And yet the reason he was only one of the best and not the best is because Wilt Chamberlain had an issue. He couldn't shoot his free throws. Couldn't do it. But one year, one year Wilt decided he was going to shoot underhand. Shoot those free throws underhand. What are those called? Granny shots. Will decided he was going to shoot granny shots underhanded to see if that helped his free throws, and guess what it did? He became like a 78% free throw shooter. He was unstoppable that year. That year, he scored over 50 points a game. That will be a record that is never broken. He scored 100 points in one game um, that season as well. He was the best ever that season. He was the best. The next season, however, Wilt stopped shooting baskets underhanded. Why? Go ahead, take a guess. Why? Didn't look good. He's getting made fun of. Players on the other team were laughing at him. And so instead of doing what he could continue to do to be the best ever, Wilt couldn't handle it. He decided he was going to be just one of the best ever. And he started shooting poor free throws again. And uh, what, what Gladwell goes on to say is he goes on to say it takes courage to go against the system. It takes courage uh, to move away from what everybody else is doing. There's a high threshold that hum- human beings have, and it takes a great deal of courage for them to leave a pack and to move forward on their own journey. It takes great courage for that to happen. In fact, he, uh, other uh, authors have gone on to say, like, it almost feels like you're leaving home. You're leaving a village, and you're saying goodbye. These types of actions, these types of courageous movements— and I was struck to the core by this because I feel this way about our church. I feel this way about the journey that our church has been on. I think the journey that our church has been on uh, has been pretty incredible over the past year. And if you guys have been here over the past year, then you know that we started with something called Faith, Culture, and Questions, where we said, you know, we're going to start asking some different questions as a church. We started doing different Bible studies. We said, you know, we're looking at Scripture through some new lenses. We're reading in new ways. Uh, We started writing blog posts, and then somehow Ryan and I got published by Huffington Post. Ryan way more than me. And we started, like, getting all these uh, um, different ideas and thoughts out to the public. And we were like, you know, this is really, really cool, but what will people think of our church? What do people think of our church? Will we still have a church if we continue to progress down this road? Will that still happen? Will we lose our jobs? Will people leave? What will happen if we continue to um, um, move in this direction where we're interested in all these questions and interested in new ways of reading scripture? And I heard this podcast, and I was like, I don't care. I do not care. We need the courage to do what is right. 
We need the courage to answer the call that God has given us. And so that's what we're going to do as a church. I'm going to take the next five weeks to set up a series. The series is called Forefront Is. And for this series, what I want to do is I want to tell you all those things that have been rattling around in all of our minds, all those ways that we feel God has called us to a new way, a new identity of looking at church. I want to talk about all the ways um, that we have studied and prayed and conversed and done all those things. And I want to tell you who we are as a church, what we believe about Jesus, what we believe about salvation, God, scriptures, sin. And today I'm going to talk to us about what our vision is. I don't know if you guys noticed, but we changed our vision like five months ago and like told no one. We just did it. We're like, oh, there it is. But I'm going to actually talk about that because I think our vision plays into who we are, who we're called to be, and where we are going. But before I talk about who Forefront is as a church, what I want to do is I want to set up some ground rules. I like setting up ground rules. And so here's the first one. We say this all the time. We're way more interested in asking good questions rather than having the right answers. Okay, what does that mean? It means that everyone is welcome here. You are welcome if you feel like God is speaking to you so clearly and you know exactly what God wants from you and you are able to worship because of it, you are welcome here. You are here. We feel like if you are doubting and you are in a desert and you don't even believe God exists, you are welcome here. Anybody who's in between with different feelings, thoughts about God, about religion, about Christianity, about where we're headed, you are welcome here because we're not all about finding the right answer. We're about saying it's about the journey. It's about the journey. That means we're more interested in asking good questions. Okay, second thing, our church is a church that believes in unity and not uniformity, okay? We are unapologetically a Christian church, unapologetically a church that believes in Jesus Christ, a church that unapologetically believes in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection and grace for all of us. We are united on that. But then there's this thing, uniformity. Somewhere along the line, we were told a lie that we had to believe all the same things if we were going to hang out together at church. Somebody told that like, you know, 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, 20 years ago I graduated from high school. What were you guys doing 20 years ago? You remember? Nobody remembers. <laughs> you were all doing something, right? You remember. It wasn't that long ago. But 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul has to start writing letters to a bunch of new churches. You want to know why? Because they can't figure out unity and uniformity. They're like, oh, we believe in Jesus, but these people want to come to our church. They can't come, right? And Paul's like, oh, my gosh. Relax. Who told us the lie that we had to be both uni unified and uniform in our doctrine, in our thought, in our thinking? I love the fact that we have different ideas, different thoughts, and different ways of going about, about life. That's what makes us an incredible church community. Okay? Last thing. If you look down at your seat or the seat around you, you have a paper, a piece of paper, and a pen. I want you to participate in this series with us. So every Sunday that you come here, I want you to uh, write down the questions you have about our church. They could be theological in nature. They could be practical. Write down the questions that you have about who Forefront is and where Forefront is going. And when uh, you come up to take communion later, you'll see these baskets that are here at the table. What I want you to do is I want you to drop your question in the basket, okay? And on October 9th, the last day of this series, we're basically going to have a town hall style service we're going to answer as many of these questions as we can, have a little conversation, do a little back and forth. So you absolutely have to write questions down because October 9th will be so bad. We'll just stare at each other. It's going to be awkward. So make sure you write down questions, okay? Make sure that happens. Pick up your piece of paper and do that. So what's this journey that we've been on? Where are we going as a church? What are the things that, um, that we're courageous about? What's this call that we're answering? Well, I want to start by talking about our vision, because I think our vision is going to help define who we are as a church. And this is our vision. I think it's so important that I'm going to read it out loud. It's this. Forefront Church is an interdenominational community 
dedicated to cultivating a just and generous expression of the Christian faith. Okay, there are a couple things I want to break down today. All right, the first thing I want to break down is this, is this word interdenominational. Forefront is an interdenominational church. What does that mean? Do you know that there are about 30,000 different Christian denominations? Do you know that? About 30,000. Wikipedia says there's 40,000, but that's Wikipedia, so I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, uh, there's a lot, right? There's a whole lot of denominations. On our staff, on Forefront staff, four people in Manhattan, four people in Brooklyn, there are seven different denominations that we come from. The only, one, the only ones of us that have the same, or come from the same denomination are me and the associate pastor in Manhattan, Travis Eads. We both come from the Restoration Movement, Church of Christ Movement. That's it. Everybody else comes from a different denomination. And so here's the beauty of 30,000 denominations. Here's the beauty of, um, of all of them. Everybody's right. That's the beauty of all of them. Everybody is right. And so when I was a kid growing up in the Restoration Movement, Church of Christ, my guess is you have a similar story to mine. We were told to pray for the Catholics, right? Like the Catholics, they were going to hell. Like, pray for your Catholic friends, Jonathan. I was like inviting my Catholic friends to church. They're like, I already go to church. I go to mass. I'm like, no, you don't. It's not the right one. Right? That's, I think some of you guys have similar experiences. The Baptists weren't too far behind either. Neither were the Presbyterians with their holy water on babies. What's that all about? That was my thinking when I was 11. But anyway, we are all right. We all have it right. We're all smart. And so we have 30,000 different denominations who say they all have it right. And everybody's kind of messed up in this. And we already talked about how Paul is sitting there telling, you know, different churches 20 years after the death and resurrection of Christ that they got it wrong. And so there was a whole another group of churches that came around and said, I'm done with all of you denominations. I'm going to start a non-denominational church. In fact, for a while, Forefront was called non-denominational. Okay. And, uh, and what that says to me anyway, and I think it says this to our staff as well, is everything that ever happened in 2,000 years with those 30,000 denominations were so terrible that we're going to throw the entire thing out. And we have the audacity to say, well, now that we're non-denominational, we get it right. That doesn't work either. So why are we interdenominational? Uh, I was dating my wife, who's Indian, and I'm an Irish white guy from Long Island. And when we, it started getting serious, we said, oh, it looks like we're going to get married. And then I said, seriously, though, you're Indian from Philly. I'm Irish from Long Island. Like, we have, like, major cultural differences. And so we were really intentional, super intentional. Like, we would sit down at a dinner, and we'd say, like, tell me about this that happens in your ethnicity or in your culture or in your tradition. And she would. And then she'd tell, say to me, well, what did you do in this situation or that situation? We were super intentional looking at what we did in our cultures and our ethnicities and our traditions. And then we'd say, that's amazing. I want that in our relationship. And in fact, if we have kids, which we do have kids now, I want our kids to be raised with that. And so what we found ourselves doing, we're taking these incredibly good parts of my wife's South Indian culture and really incredibly good parts of my Irish Long Island culture, <laughs> because Strong Isle, and bringing them all together. And creating something that we said, this is, this is beautiful, this is good. This allows us to grow as a couple. This allows us strength as a couple. And now that we have kids, it allows our kids to grow in really cool traditions, in really cool ways. Now, on the contrary, growing up on Long Island, I'll just admit it, it's segregated and a bit racist. Okay, so we wanted to throw that part out. I don't want that. For my, for, I don't want that part of my culture. My wife's culture is a bit misogynistic. She doesn't want that part of her culture. So it, as, as we were gathering things, we were also looking at the bad parts and going, we don't need that. 
We don't need that. So what we were doing was taking the best of both worlds. We weren't going, throw it all out. We're starting all over again. No, we're taking the best of what you have, the best of what I have. We're bringing it together to create something life-giving. Does this give you a better idea of what it means to be interdenominational? There are 30,000 denominations, and many of them throughout the years have done incredible things. They've taught us how to worship well. They've taught us how to really understand the mystery of God. They've taught us how to put ourselves in rhythms, uh, rhythms in which we can, we can see God or hear God or at least get some fingerprints of God, right? Like uh, there's really beautiful things that have happened in denominations. We don't want to throw it out. We want to take it. So, for instance, in my denomination, my denomination, you know, for all it did wrong, they do communion every week. And I'm like, I love the fact that each and every week we get to celebrate the idea that we're so loved by God that God comes down as Jesus and says, I love you this much that I'm going to sacrifice myself for you. That is worth celebrating every week. That comes from my denomination. We're not going to pray for the Catholics, though. I think they're okay. No, you know, but that's another thing. With, with, with our, we, we follow the Christian calendar. And in following the Christian calendar, I was, I, growing up, I was taught that that was wrong. That's a, you're supposed to be free in the way you worship. But yet there's a real beauty to this rhythm of worship that happens through the seasons. It's a beauty that I think shows us that we are joining billions of people before us that did this and billions of people after us who will do this. And I'm like, that's something I want to hang on to. This is what it means for us to be interdenominational. I love the fact that when I was gone, we had Hannah Johnston, who is from England, who is part of the English church. We had uh, Joanne Howell, who is, grew up in a Jamaican church that I don't even know what you guys were, I don't think. What? You were Anglican as well? And then we had Mira Joyner, who grew up part Hindu and then part Catholic. And all three of them came up and shared experiences that were these incredibly deep truths in, to, the, to this and for this community. Incredibly deep truths about who God was. And when you're interdenominational, we're free to hear from others who God, who God is working in their lives as well. That's what it means to be an interdenominational church. So that's what we're doing. We're an interdenominational church, taking from our tradition and our experience and our backgrounds, and we're bringing it together to say uh, we are creating a picture of God and God's calling in our lives. And in order to do that, then we want to create and cultivate a just and generous expression of the Christian faith. What does that mean? I'm going to stay a little while on just. Um, A just expression of the Christian faith. You know our church is going to be four years old this month? Like in two weeks, we're going to be four years old. It's crazy. Whether you've been here for four years or just uh, today's your first time, uh, I say it all the time. God loves us so much that God partners with us in restoring peace to this world. God loves us so much that God partners with us in restoring peace to this world. God says, I want you to partner in, in bringing peace where you see peace being broken. So maybe through sacrifice, we, we restore peace that God intends. Maybe it's through giving that we restore peace God intends. Maybe it's through rebuilding a relationship we restore peace that God intends. If you were here last week, maybe it's buying ethically sourced clothes that restores the peace that God intends. That's what it means to be just. To be just means our church is continually and constantly looking for ways that we restore the peace that God intends for this world. We recognize that we're partnering with God in that. Now the generous word, this is the one that's going to throw you off for a loop. All right? I want you to bear with me because I'm about to give you a loaded word. Okay? What does it mean to have a generous Christianity? Well, generous isn't generous in the sense of like giving or sacrificing. When I say generous, I'm talking about orthodoxy. And orthodoxy is belief. So we have a generous belief. Okay? What does that mean? Um, I'm going to use a word that's a giant buzzword. Uh, It means that we are progressive in our belief. That's what it means. Now, 
Some of you are going, great. I've been looking for a church that's progressive in their belief. Others of you are going, where's the door? I've got to find it. Well, first let me dispel what we are not. When I say that we are progressive in our belief, we are not some liberal church at the end of a spectrum um, saying anything goes, whatever you want to do is fine, whatever you want to believe is fine. We're not there, and we never will be there. Remember, we're unified, and we're unified in in Jesus Christ, right? Um, In fact, I would say that we take our Christianity, we take our scriptures so seriously, we take uh, the Bible so seriously, the Holy Spirit so seriously, that we have no choice but to be progressive in our Christianity, in our orthodoxy. I'll explain again. There's a guy named uh, Mendeleev, Sergei Mendeleev, I believe. I don't have my notes. Sergei Mendeleev, he says uh, he uh, was the first person to create the, um, Dmitry Mendeleev is his name, my fault. First person to create the periodic table of elements. So there were 60 of them. 1860, he created 60 uh, um, gases and metals and said, this is our periodic table. So what did him and the rest of the scientists do? They said, we're done. We figured out every single gas and metal that has ever existed in the world, and we have our periodic table. Is that what they did? No. They're like, there's more to discover. There's more here. We just don't have the lens to see it yet. There's more here. It just hasn't been revealed to us yet. There's more here. We, we just, we just got to get to that place. We need to use our gifts and our talents to, to, find, it, to find that time when we can get to discover what's more, what's coming, what's next. And so in 2016, we've gone from 60 elements on the periodic table to a little bit over 110 elements on the periodic table. Not because we stopped and we're finished, but because we realized there was a progression there was a constant learning, discovering, revealing new lenses. 1897, the atom was discovered. The building blocks of life, smallest thing around. Scientists were like, we finally found it. The building blocks of life, the smallest thing around. We're done. No. They were like, I wonder if we could split this. I wonder if we could split this atom. Not only that, but I wonder if there are things that are smaller than this atom, subatomic particles. And as of today, we know that there are over 150 subatomic particles. We know that. And they do things that are incredible that I won't even get into now, but like totally point towards God. Like one of them can transport itself like on Star Trek, one of the particles. It like transports itself. Anyway, I get excited about that stuff. I'll get, I'll get back. Um, but what we have here is we have a progression. Right? We, have this, we have this idea that, you know, we have a God-given gift, a God-given ability to discover, to see life through new lenses. We have a God-given ability through the Holy Spirit to have God reveal new things to us. It's a gift that we have that we use in every aspect of our lives. We want our kids to continue to grow and move and discover. We want to do the same thing. We want to do that in technology. We want to advance in every way possible. And then when we get to the Christian church in the past, uh, I would say, 100 years here in America, the Christian church, the evangelical church says, welcome, come in, leave your brain at the door. Because there is no more discovery. There's no more new lens. What we have is we have it right here. It's been in this Bible. The Bible says that I believe it, and that is it. Check it out. It goes against the gifts that God has actually given us. Now, I'm not saying the Bible is not God-ordained. I absolutely believe the Bible is God-ordained. I'm just saying for us to say, sit here and go, that's it. says it on the page. Do it. It goes against the gifts that we have where God says discover, progress, Watch me as I reveal more to you. There are new lenses in which you can see. And it's dangerous not to be progressive. It's dangerous not to be progressive in belief. I'm going to show you how it's dangerous uh, that, that we, uh, you know, when you're not progressive in your belief, when we're not progressive in our belief. Uh, I'm going to read you a quote. And this quote comes from a book. And I'm not going to tell you the name of the book. 
because it'll give it away. Um, but this is the quote, right? And the quote says this. It says, our cause is the cause of Christ. The Bible is true and without error. Your cause is the cause of Christ. And as a church, the only rule of judgment is the written word of God. The, Bible's the Bible is the authoritative word of God and not speculation. And what the Bible pro proclaims must be proclaimed with infallible certainty and not with an assent of opinion. Now, some of that I agree with. Again, I believe the Bible's God-ordained. I, I agree with that. But I've also heard stuff like this before, past two or three years, uh, maybe the past ten years when it comes to women in ministry. It says it right there. Women, submit to men. You know, don't, women are not permitted to teach. The Bible's truth. It's the authoritative word of God. It's without error. If anybody says it's not, you can't take them seriously. I've heard this recently with the LGBT community. I can't support same-sex marriage. I can't do that because it's right there. It's in the scripture. The Bible says it's truth. It's the authoritative word of God. Anything else we can't take seriously. We have to throw the whole thing out. I hear those arguments recently. And yet the quote that I just read from you, or to you, this quote, this isn't from three years ago. It's not from 20 years ago. This quote is from 1861. It's from a pastor named James Thornwell. And James Thornwell speaking to his congregation about why slavery should always remain sanctioned. It's a God-given gift. That's what slavery is. And for anybody to think any differently means that that's an assent of an opinion. Because Scripture clearly says slaves obey your masters even to the point of being beaten or death. And so if that's the case, then slaves should always be obedient. When we are not progressing, we are oppressing. That is the bottom line. And I see the thought bubbles in your head. Well, Jonathan, this gets a little crazy because, you know, I've been taught that the Bible is inerrant, and I grew up in this denomination with my family. I've been a snake handler my whole life. I don't know what to do. Like, you know, and I get it. I really get it. <laughs> All you snake handlers. Um, <laughs> And you're like, I was taught that it's, it's this, and, and now you're telling me it's not. What am I supposed to believe? How am I supposed to look at scriptures? What am I supposed to think about God? This is scary to me, Jonathan. And I see that. I hear that. I understand that. And so guess what? Next week I'm preaching a whole message on scripture. You'll have to come back then. But <laughs> I get that. That's a hard thing. Um, it's a hard thing to say, you know what, I, I'm, I'm, I'm doing something different. It's a hard thing to say, I'm not going to believe the same way other evangelicals believe. It's a hard thing to say, you know, we're going to take some unpopular chances and risks because we believe that God's calling us to that, and we feel like we're discovering that. There's new lenses in which to see it, and God's revealing that to us. We're going to do that. That's a scary thing. The disciples were scared because they were getting ready to go to Jerusalem. And um, they said, Jesus, uh, what do we do? We're going, to, we're going to Jerusalem. They want to kill us. And, and we don't know what to do. Just give it to us. Tell us, are you the Messiah? Black and white, come on. Tell us where we need to go, what we need to do. And Jesus took a piece of paper out of his pocket. And he gave it to them. And he said, follow these laws and you'll be all good. Thank you, Dave, for laughing. <laughs> Jesus didn't say that. They said, what do we do? Who are you? You're the Messiah. What do you do? And Jesus said, listen. I'm going to die, I'm going to be resurrected, and then for about 325 years, it's going to be fuzzy. People aren't going to be really sure what this whole thing's about. But then the Roman Empire is going to come around, they're going to call you Christians, they're going to canonize the scriptures in 333, and then you'll have it all figured out. <laughs> Jesus says this, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. 
But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. And I love this because what he's saying is when the spirit comes upon us, that's when the stuff gets revealed. That's when we have new lenses which to see. That's when there's new discoveries. And we sit here and we worship and we go, this is the infinite and unimaginable God. But if we're not progressing, what we're doing is we're saying, God, you are completely imaginable. You're completely finite. You're right in here and you're not changing. It goes against what God's telling us. It goes against the spirit. For too long, for far too long, I think I have stood with my denomination at the top of the mountain. And I've climbed all the way up and I got to the top and I said, I'm at the top, I made it, I'm done, finished. And I've said, hey, everybody climbing up the mountain, I figured it out, I'm done, come up the mountain with me, come on. And then all these mega churches are like, we got to figure it out too. And then all the, um, you know, the, the uh, whoever, the other people, the... the <laughs> The writers and the, the TV people, they're like, we got to figure it out. Come to the top of the mountain. This is it. We got it all right. No more questions. This is it. And they've made a killing doing that, haven't they? A lot of people love certainty. I love certainty. But if we're being honest about our church, I woke up one morning, we woke up one morning, and the fog cleared, and we realized we were only like 300 feet up the mountain. We realized that it was much easier for us to wave to the people down there than it was to even see the top. But here's the beauty of Christianity. Here's the beauty of our God-given gift of the Spirit to tell us, to reveal to us. The beauty is we get to climb. We get to climb little by little where God reveals a little bit more and a little bit more, and we start to get this idea of who God is and that God is love. We get to climb a little bit more and a little bit more, and Maybe we make it, maybe we don't. But isn't that what it means to worship the infinite and unimaginable God? Isn't that what it means? What do you say? You guys want to climb? It's scary to climb. You guys want to climb or not? Good. And there's some people who really do. I was, I was like, half the people are going to walk out, half the people are going to want to climb. <laughs> and I feel like I got a, a good majority want to climb. Good. Anyway, let's climb. And it's scary to climb. And, and you know what? Scripture is, is so clear all the time, every time. Scripture is always like, uh, you know, whenever something big is about to happen, uh, people are always like, I'm afraid. And it's always the same thing. Do not be afraid. Moses is getting ready to free the slaves uh, out of Egypt. And God says, don't be afraid. It's a big move. Get it done. Mary is pregnant with the Messiah. And the an angel goes, don't be afraid. She goes, how can this be? The angel goes, seriously, don't be afraid. God's praying, in the, or Jesus is praying in the garden, and he says, let this cup pass before me. And it doesn't, but I can hear God. Like, I, there's this knowing, there's this peace that comes, and it's like, don't be afraid. This changes everything. And when the disciples are sitting there, and they don't know what's going to happen to Jesus after he tells them that he's given them more than they can, then he, he won't give them a bunch yet because it's more than they could bear, and they're super confused, like, Jesus, what's going on? The last thing Jesus says to them is this. He says, I've spoken this while I'm still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father who sent in my name, will teach you all things, remind you of everything I had said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. This journey is new, and it's exciting, and I think we're going to go through some stuff that feels a little different than what we were brought up with, or the Christianity that we know. And I'm saying, let's do it. Let's take courage. It takes courage to do what's right. It takes courage not to be afraid. 
Because I believe that at the end of the day, our church has a God who is calling us to new revelation, calling us to, to, to new discovery, calling us to new lenses that we can see in life. And the truth is, our God is a God that makes broken things new again, that takes old things and makes them young and brings the dead back to life. That's the God that I want to worship and follow, not something else that, 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 that's stale and plain and static. So let's do it. Let's climb the mountain. Let's be a part of this God. Let's be a part of this journey. I invite you all to be a part of Forefront. Amen? Heavenly Father, you are good, and you are infinite and unimaginable. And God, when we get it wrong, which we do get it wrong, which we will, thank you so much for the grace that comes with Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for the fact that you are big enough for all of our brokenness and all of our shortcomings and all of our certainties and uncertainties. Lord, give us peace this day as we go forth, peace knowing that we are doing your good work, peace knowing that you're constantly revealing. Give us the courage to act on your revelation, God. And Lord, as we mourn today for those who have been hurt and lost, help us to be reminded that there is a peace you give that passes all understanding. We pray this all in your name. Amen.